You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's charging it all to the Underhills, Ooh. Mr. Jeff McLargehuge. Hey, everybody. How's it going? What's up? Oh, not much. Not much. It's uh, It's been a good good week here. Lots of fun. I was listening to, I found myself listening to like weird, weird music on satellite radio. I know, I don't know if everybody has satellite radio out there, but you know, they break stations down by decades, yeah. and now that I'm old, I like to go back and listen to stuff that was either popular when I was really little, or that I don't remember from when I was a kid. And I found myself listening to this song, and I was like, I don't know this song at all. And went and looked up the back catalog of this band, they're called Badfinger. I'm sure some of you are like, hey, I know them. I know the name, yeah, and I think I know yeah. that one song. I was listening to them, I'm like, these guys sound just like the Beatles. What year did this record come out, you know? Uh-huh. And and went back and listened to them and, and realized that they had all these connective tissue to the Beatles. They were the first band that was signed by Apple Records. They had a, Their first hit was a song that Paul McCartney wrote for them. Uh-huh. They did some session work on, like, one of the one of the Beatles albums before Abbey Road. So they, they all sort of knew one another. And it was really interesting. I was thinking about how they ended up signed to Apple Records, and it's like, it was like what the Beatles, I think, would have sounded like if Paul McCartney and George Harrison had had told John Lennon and Ringo Starr to buzz off yeah. right after like Rubber Soul and they made something instead of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And it was really, it was it's really weird. You can hear all the sort of super, super influential sounds that they have in their records. Really interesting stuff. I don't know if you know their records too well. I just know that one song. And I don't remember, the, like I can hum it, but I can't think of the name of the song. <laughs> no matter where you are. Yeah, day, uh, day After Day. I think it's that one. That's the name of the song, Day After... Oh, yeah. Ooh, girl, ooh, girl, I love... Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I could actually hear Paul McCartney doing that song. Right? Which... is crazy. Would have been great if he would have done that song instead of, like, all that heads across the water stuff he was doing with Wings and around that same well, time. like... Th- I was thinking of that, too. Like, this is so... It was so much more like the Beatles than his stuff with the Wings was, like... Uh, specifically hands across the water is I I'm listening to this and all I can think of is like the same time that this record was out this is like 71 all right day after day 71 no matter what was 1970 and no matter what that's the song I'm thinking of yeah that's that's the one no matter what um and baby blue came out in 71 or 72 friggin Paul McCartney is singing like we're so sorry Uncle <laughs> Albert <Butterby>. yeah <laughs> something something butter in a pie like the songs are so like dorky and dumb and and the Badfinger songs that sound like if the Beatles had evolved into the 70s as an active group, what they could have sounded like. It was really, it was really interesting. I don't know. Listeners can go back. All their stuff is like on Apple Prime. I mean, um, Amazon Prime Music. And you can find videos of them all over YouTube playing playing their hits. I can see it, I can uh, see it now. Really, like really the guys cool. from Badfinger, they're like, hey, um, 
We notice you uh, starting to do this like heads across the water stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we see you get this maybe I'm... Oh, no, no, I'm keeping that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I mean, <laughs> when you think of wings, you're like, all right, what's a good wing song? It's like, maybe I'm amazed. And that's, yep. that, that's about the long and short of it, really. <laughs> Right, and I, I still like Hands Across the Water, even though it's – I listen to it now and my, like my, I, my eyes roll back in my head far enough that I can see my brain sometimes. But that song was super popular when I was really little. So hearing the like – makes me think of like, you know, playing at my house with my two little brothers and, you know, having a big dirt pile and Tonka trucks and all those all those sort of things. So, right in the middle of the living room. Right in the middle of the living room. <laughs> yeah. My mom never liked to vacuum. All right. So um, right. let's uh, let's get this show rolling. This is going to be the week beginning October the fifth. It looks like yes. We're gonna let you start, but before we start, I'm gonna oh. give you a trivia question. Oh man! All right, you remember the Austin Powers movies, right? I do. Okay. I don't remember the, liking the third one, but I remember the okay. first two. But uh, irrelevant. In between, like the scenes, there was always like this psychedelic kind of band that was playing. Now yeah. that band was called Ming T. And right. the members of that band are all famous. Wow. Okay. Who are they? Hmm. Jeez, I'm not sure. We'll have to I think will. about that as the day goes on. I will tell you much later. What October 5th. And, and I, I love this story because you can actually go and watch it on YouTube. In 2018, on October 5th, Banksy's painting, Girl with Balloon, which was just literally auctioned a minute earlier for $860,000, about 1 million pounds. At Sotheby's in London, the picture itself fell through a shredder that Banksy had built into the picture frame in case the painting was ever auctioned. All live, no one knew it was there. It just dropped down and it shredded the painting like it had gone through a crosscut shredder uh, that you'd have in like an office building. It's amazing <laughs> to see the video. I saw it in the pre-show. You showed me the video to right. that, and 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 you you recognize the painting. Like I like oh I know that painting and then brrr, it just drops through this freaking paper shredder yep. and it it was like this avant-garde like saw movie yep basically <laughs> what it's, it's amazing is like weirdly Banksy had to be there in the audience somewhere to trigger the remote control that started the thing because right. I don't know how you would do it otherwise. But just to see, like, everybody's looking at the auctioneer. They've all got their back to the painting, which is now on the wall behind the person that bought it. And yep. it starts to beep. <laughs> and people are start looking around, and the painting just drops right into the shredder. It is astonishingly cool. That is hilariously hilarious. Like, how much did it get auctioned for? $860,000 U.S., <laughs> 1 million pounds. <laughs> And the right. guys get this freaking pile of paper in a, in a mechanical frame. The funny thing with art is, like, things happen to paintings like that, I guess. And it technically, because the whole painting didn't go through, or I guess even if it did, it wouldn't matter. But right. because of that event, the painting now has a value considerably in excess of $860,000. So art's a funny thing. Like, I don't know how often the listeners out there get the opportunity to go to the museums that are local to wherever their cities and towns are. And art values are weird things. I know at, at times on this show, we've, we've talked about visual arts a little bit, but stuff like a painting that self shreds or, um, <laughs> well, I guess it wasn't art, but people thought it was where a person had left his glasses on the floor. I love at that a, story. At a museum, right? And people started taking pictures of this dude's glasses <laughs> that are just laying on the floor as if it's an art exhibit is because it's evocative, Right. right. There used to be a, a PBS show. 
with a, a nun that talked about art, classical art, modern art, whatever. And she had given an interview on a late night show. And in that show, she said, well, art is anything that makes you have a feeling, whether the feeling is good or bad or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is because that's that's art. And the host asked her about the this sort of controversial piece called Piss Christ, which is a jar of urine-colored liquid with a crucifix submerged in it. Right. And she says, oh, I've seen that. Yes, that's definitely art. And the host was astonished because it doesn't seem like it takes any creativity. She says, you don't understand. It's If it makes you feel something, then it's art. So it made me feel revulsion. It made me feel sadness. It made me feel angry. It made me feel... Th- you know, thoughtful and question, you know, question what I was looking at. So therefore, it's art. And I thought that was a fantastic uh, answer. And that I've, I've tried to frame my sort of visual philosophy around that sort of idea. It's like, what does it make me feel? And therefore, is it art? Teller from Penn and Teller, mm-hmm. his definition is art is everything that you do once the chores are done, which I thought was pretty cool. My snores are worth $1.5 million. (laughs) Uh, We go to uh, St. Louis uh, every year for the trade show for the Haunted House. Uh, Mm -hmm. St. Louis has got this really cool kind of thing that they have going on that if a building is vacant for more than, we'll say, a month, they have artists come in and place their paintings and sculptures inside the storefronts so that the buildings don't look vacant. Right. That's what, St. Louis, Missouri? Yes. Wow. So that must be like every building downtown pretty much. That that uh, city's like in rough shape. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. And, you know, some of it is cool. Other parts of it is like a school desk with a bunch of nuts and bolts and a pile on top of it. And right. then I came up with anything that I can recreate in under three minutes is not art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, well, fair enough. That's the, I'm drawing the line in the sand. All right. Con- it's, it's three controversial well, as it is. But. So and and for those of you that don't know, Bill is a, is a sketch artist. So Bill spends a lot of time with use your medium is charcoal. Is it? Am I correct? Charcoal um, and pencils. Interestingly enough, my medium was inks. Okay. I would draw in pen and then. One day I got ambitious and I completely changed my mediums and now I draw almost primarily in charcoals. Yeah, charcoal, right? So and I, I so, do uh, I do portraits and I'm basically a mimic artist. So so that brings us all artistically to October sixth, Bill. What yeah. do you have for oh, October sixth? The most artistic thing you can possibly think of for breakfast. Um, October 6, 1893, Nabisco unleashes hell upon the world in the form <laughs> of cream of wheat. Cream of wheat is invented by our friends over at Nabisco. Breakfast has been much better ever since because nobody eats it. I don't know anybody. Do you? I, what's your experience with cream of wheat? I don't think, so, I don't okay, think I've ever so, had it. Okay, so I am I admit I'm a fan of cream of wheat, and I have been since I was a kid. But I, I do recognize that there's this weird period in American history, like the 18, 1880 to 1900, mm-hmm. where the race to produce the most bland and flavorless, fiber-filled breakfast cereal, cold or hot, mm-hmm. seemed to be on. Cream of wheat definitely has a consistency of paste if you make it the wrong way. 70 short years later, we're over there heading for the moon. But prior to and that, it was all about porridge. It was all about porridge. <laughs> Like, it's the same year that, you know, Kellogg's Corn Flakes were released. I'm sure Nabisco Shredded Wheat came out. So all of these sort of what I like to refer to as punishment cereals for children (laughs) 
were released like, you know, eat your cream of wheat because, you know, whatever you don't eat, we're going to use to hang the wallpaper. <laughs> and there it is, a way to get that bottom of your food guide pyramid, uh, the grains section all in one bland, bland prison style meal. Yeah, I, yeah, something you could just like plop out really fast, you know, for breakfast. You know, otherwise you're over there, you know, jiggling eggs and making the coffee right. and the bacon and stuff like that. Come on, Junior. It's time to go to work for 37 hours a day down at the factory. <laughs> eat your cream of wheat, you know. Right. You, uh, one time that I had, uh, I crashed at your place, you had made SOS for breakfast. I was like, I, as soon as I got home, you know, the, the following weekend, I was making it for myself because I really enjoyed it. What I do whenever I make my SOS is I add allspice, ground allspice into it. Yep. Now, allspice is kind of what gives French meat pie its flavor. Mm-hmm. If you put allspice on anything, it tastes like French meat like pie. French meat pie. You put yep. it on a cupcake, you get yourself a French meat cupcake. Yep. So I add it to my SOS. So now... I have Le Mid on a shingle is what I have. <laughs> Le Mid on a shingle. I actually learned the recipe for SOS from my dad. who My dad was an army guy. Yep. And uh, when I was a kid, he used to make that every now and then. And that was like punishment breakfast in my house on Sundays. Are you kidding me? I love Sometimes. it. Sometimes, no. Yeah, it's, again, as you get older, your tastes mature. But as a kid, it's like gray meat and milk on toast and it doesn't taste like anything but salt it looks like a rain yeah it's like what are you having for breakfast a rainy day is what i'm having a rainy day i'm having sadness yeah. a bowl of sadness well, and, and i haven't made it in a year because i've been a vegetarian for a year because of my teenage daughter but usually when i make sos it takes like i'll eat the whole pound of hamburger oh, yeah. in like one breakfast sitting if i'm not careful yeah this stuff is super addictive and delicious have you tried making tos tofu on a shingle i have not i have used some of the like the vegetarian alternatives yeah. to ground beef but they don't have the same they don't travel in the same flavors right. so it doesn't taste the same yeah my my go-to for breakfast these days is just because i've been working so many hours at my job that and plus you know editing the podcast and all that I, I, i've just been doing peanut, like fluff and udders is what I've been doing. Loughner. That's the, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I've, I've fallen into, uh, speaking of breakfast that has no real flavor until you add things to it, is oatmeal with blueberries and a little bit of butter and sugar. Oh, on weekends though? Like know. when I finally have a day off, like on Sundays? Oh yeah, I'm making it. I'm getting like eggs with cheese and uh, sometimes I'll make the SOS. I happen to like mm-hmm. grits, speaking of yep. flavorless things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What's your favorite flavorless thing? I'm going to either go uh, with grits see. Or Naco wafers, they are the white ones. Or cream yeah, of yeah, wheat. Yeah. Well, cream of wheat is pretty close to cream of wheat is actually pretty close, pretty close to grits, um, as far as texture, taste, and consistency goes. So, well, grits. So you may not you corn. may not have eaten them, but you may have eaten them. Yes, grits I know grits is corn is cornmeal, but again, taste and consistency they're about the same. They don't taste like anything. So for me, if I uh, weekend breakfast is usually two eggs and toast and a can of vegetarian beans. I'm overfilled and very happy for the rest as of the day. As opposed to the beans you get from an animal. Well, yeah, it means that there's no there's no there's like it's not pork. Pork and beans. Oh, it's right. not. It's not beans that have any animal products in them. So, all right. Being a vegetarian is 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 okay. Yep. All right. Moving on to October the seventh. October the seventh. Okay. Nineteen sixty-eight. After years and years and years of the Hayes Code dominating how Hollywood made films uh, and what films could contain, the Motion Picture Association of America established the rating system GPGR and X that was adopted by the studio system at the time. Even though it was a voluntary organization and no films were required to be rated, there were concerns that 
cinemas wouldn't show films that didn't have a rating. So television stations wouldn't market films that wouldn't have a rating. So these ratings, G for general audiences, P for parental guidance, R for restricted, and X for, I don't know, X-ray eyes, <laughs> meant that, you know, kids could see a film by themselves. Kids could see a film if their parents bought them tickets. Kids could see a film if they were with their parents, or kids could see a film if they weren't kids anymore and were over 18. Sort of set the standard that we still follow today. You'll you'll actually still hear stories of people's directors submitting films for a rating and then having to go back and make more edits because this group of volunteer film reviewers who tend to hew towards the extremely conservative side socially recommend cuts for language, nudity, violence, etc. Much less violence than nudity and, and language, uh, as it has proved now, out. Now, prior to that, prior to, what did you say, 68, right? Yeah, prior to 68. Right. So, like, Psycho came out in 1960, and yep. one of the rules in the Hays Code was no nudity. And there was like, they were like, well, there's nudity in that movie. And, you know, Hitchcock was like, actually, no, there isn't. We made very sure about that. And, and there was like the biggest controversy with that was that was the first movie to show a toilet flushing. So right. if you look at movies that came out in between, we'll say, 68 and they, they kind of eased up, I guess, in the mid-70s. But those movies that came out between 68 and we'll say 75, they're all f***ing crazy. Well, I mean, like Hollywood changed. The Hays Code kind of fell apart because of monster movies and B pictures and all these little studios and stuff that would make stuff like, I don't know, Ed Wood's Glen or Glenda or whatever, things that were outside the mainstream but could still get distribution through small cinemas and independent drive-ins and stuff. There was less pressure for studios to adhere to that. And then there was a run of like super-duper violent films like Bonnie and Clyde and Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch and, you know, A Clockwork Orange and some other stuff that, that really pushed the oh, limits. and The Exorcist, too. And The Exorcist, you know, I mean, too. Not so much would, I guess... I don't know if you could call it violence, but, you know, when she starts going to town, when she's fully uh, possessed there with the cross and, you know, in her mom's face, you know, that is crazy for conservative America. But, like, the movie makers at that time, and and another one is Death Wish. That was another very violent movie. But basically, like, they were like, what? What? Wait, we can do whatever we want? Well, <laughs> and, and some films like still skirted it. I think Billy Jack was an independent film that came out. Tom Laughlin's weird Hapkido slash hippie slash whatever it was movie. I don't think that was ever rated. I don't think any of his sequels were he ever put through the MPAA either. And there were some directors who resisted it right to the end. And I mean, as the rating system changed a little bit, like X became associated with pornography after about 1972 because of a, a film that was a major release called Deep Throat. Um, with Linda Lovelace, and and there was that mix of adult films, and I say adult with capital letters, and film pornography that was new. Behind the Green Door was... A general audience for it. Behind the Green Door, yes, right. And that was the, that starred the girl who was known for being the Ivory Snow, the face of Ivory Snow. Marilyn Chambers was her name, right. Marilyn Chambers, right. And then, you know, jump ahead 20 some odd years, Jack Valenti, who's the guy who authored the system and, and managed it until he died, was was really freaked out by Indiana Jones and the Temple right. of that Doom. That was rated PG. And then the, that movie's like super violent. Kalimah! He pulls the guy's beating heart right. out of it, his it's chest. Pulling, pulling, pulling the beating heart out of his chest was literally was the scene that, that led to the, to the new PG-13 rating that came out just right. after that. 
think the the first PG thirteen film was what was the what was the first PG thirteen film? Bill, Bill, do you remember? It was Red either Dawn. Red Dawn or Starman, but I'm pretty sure it was Red Dawn. Yeah, Red Dawn, directed, written and directed by John Milius, right? I don't, I don't know. They made so, a remake of it. Chris Hemsworth was in it, and I just, I, I really wanted to hear Chris Hemsworth shout Wolverine, but under much different circumstances. <laughs> yeah. That makes two of us. So anyway, uh, 68, the MPAA is established, establishes the rating system. And now who knows what the, this rating system is going to mean going forward as so, so much film is being you know put into other venues like different streaming venues at the same time that they hit cinemas, if they hit cinemas at all. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, unknowns as to whether or not this rating system is still effective as for what it was originally designed right. and to do. And there's a lot of straight to streaming movies as well that don't necessarily have to go through the rating system god knows right. what the hell shark exorcist is rated if it's if it's rated well, at again all. like no film no film has to go through the rating system but the way the distribution works is that it's very difficult to get a film into cinemas that haven't been through the rating system so it's like this weird catch-22 uh we're gonna move on to october the 8th 1992 mortal Kombat gets released into arcades everywhere and i had my manhood stolen and wailed on by approximately a thousand thirteen to fourteen year old boys who had way more quarters than I did and had time to learn all the special combos so that even though I could do up punch, down punch, up kick, down kick, they would rip my spine out. It was a two player game and you know, the joystick on either side, and I go over there and I'm playing, you know, and I'm I'm just trying to learn this game and all that. All of a sudden this little shit comes over, puts his quarter in, and I'm like, hey, 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 I was playing. And then just like proceeds to like not only just embarrass me because I can't get any, I can barely get in a punch in. But then like the fatality thing happens and I had never seen it before. Right. Right. And he was like sub zero and he pulls my head off my body and he's like holding my spine up. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, you monster. Right. All I wanted to do was learn how to play this game. I just felt, I felt like throwing a quarter at him. Here, that's what you wanted, right? Take my money. Right. Jeez. Yeah. Okay, fine. You can play now. Where's your mom? She's good looking, you know? So, yeah, that was back in the days when we had video arcades. Now, like, there's this whole trend now. Well, there was a, there was a recent trend towards video came video arcade filled right, the bars. Retro bars. Yeah, yeah. Where you go in, yeah, retro bars. We go, you know, you pay for drinks, but you don't play pay for games and stuff. And I can only imagine what it would be like going there and getting wailed on in Mortal Kombat by that same kid who's now of drinking age. I you know? hate you. Oh. I hated you when you were eight, and I hate you now. Uh, the the movie Mortal Kombat was one of the first movies that kind of incorporated CGI into their special effects, and it looked okay. like crap. But it was oh, well. it was like the first foot forward. That was like the that was the first movie that I can remember seeing CGI for special effects, where Scorpion's hand split open, and then the spear came out of it like that. So do you remember the uh, the the Mortal Kombat kind of like techno music? Oh, I still have the soundtrack on okay. CD someplace. Here's, here's the thing, the film. right? I found a cassette in my house, right? It's a couple, it was like maybe two years ago, and I yeah. I didn't even have a tape deck anymore, right? So mm-hmm. I bought one of those little tape decks that you could transfer over to MP3 because it did have some yeah. cassettes I wanted to transfer, and I'm listening to yeah. this cassette. Now, side one was all like 1980s top 40. So not like 80s music that you think of. More like Michael Jackson, Madonna, like hit radio right. stuff, right? Not not yeah, really yeah. the MTV yeah. stuff. Yeah, what you hear from the soundtrack of the Goldbergs. Yeah, that kind of and the other side was just 45 minutes of Mortal Kombat tech. <laughs> 
And I'm seriously thinking someone broke into my house and left this cassette. Because there is no reason. There is no reason why I would have that. I don't like I don't oh, like so top funny. forty music. And I wasn't a fan of the, the Mortal Kombat techno. Where the hell did this tape come from? So I'm telling you, somebody broke into my house. I'm calling the cops. I don't blame you. It was probably um, oh, yeah. Scorpion. Or, or, or Baraka. <laughs> <laughs> Mortal Kombat! I love that soundtrack. It's fantastic workout music. Well, if I ever find the cassette again. All right. Moving on to the ninth. October 9th, 1926, the National Broadcasting Company, or NBC, is formed. It's a conglomeration of stations under one banner, and they begin broadcasting their own programming over the radio. NBC's been around right. for a long time, and they're still based in New York City, which is uh, where they've been forever, and uh, where they'll probably they will the, be forever. They, were they the first one? Or was, I think they were. They were not. I think I think CBS was the first one. So I was actually watching a YouTube you know, factoid video. I, I love those. They were talking about how in the early 80s, NBC actually almost folded uh, because... All the you know the other two major stations at the time. There was only two other major stations at the time. There was ABC and CBS and NBC. Yes, but yeah. like ABC ruled at that point. They had Happy Days, right. Laverne and Shirley, and Three's Company, and they right. were all in a row on Tuesday nights. You know they just ruled. And right. I think it was on Monday night CBS had Mash. You know that was the biggest sitcom mm-hmm. at the time. And NBC didn't have like anything. They, the the right. one show that they had that was popular at the time was Different Strokes. Yep, which right? I watched every Friday. And there was a spinoff a show from Different Strokes called The Facts of Life. And that show, Sorry. oddly enough, is what saved NBC. It, it, it's weird, like, you know, when all of this business model is built around how much advertising dollars they can bring in, right, right, to finance their shows, not keep the lights on, but certainly finance the creation of new projects and pay for the rights to show movies on, like, the Saturday Night Movie or whatever, um, that it would be the facts of life. Yeah, of all shows. Uh, that Of all shows. Like, it was a neither it nor Different Strokes are all that memorable anymore. I mean, there's a couple of episodes, of very special episodes of each that I think stand out. There was like an anti-drug Facts uh, of Life yeah, episode. Yeah, there was the one um, uh, uh, Different Strokes where Kimberly had bulimia. That one sticks out in my mind. Yeah, but there was the anti-bullying one. And there's and there were some others that were, I mean, they were relevant, I guess, to folks that were my age when I was that age when that show was on. But to think that it would take, you know, th- those two sort of three camera cheap dollar Thursday or Friday night sitcoms to generate enough revenue for NBC to climb out of the climb out of the hole that it was in and then get picked up and and carried away by General Electric. I mean, think about it. It was like, what what I just say? Like 81, 82, 83. Uh, it yeah. wasn't long yeah. after that that I mean, think about NBC in the 90s. They ruled. They had everything. It was the must must see TV, right? And they were still and they were competing against cable too, which was starting to branch out and have its right. own programming, as opposed to just showing syndicated programming right. from network TV. So you know, all of a sudden, NBC has to compete with like Friday Night USA Network, which they ultimately went and bought, and some other stuff. So or the upstart, yeah, right? Of Fox. Fox, and then you know, uh, was it UPN that came after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they never. They were never a threat yeah, to anybody. And I, I think one of their first like launch shows was like Homeboys from Outer Space, and I was like, "Well, this isn't gonna last, is yeah. it?" Yeah, 
and right. Universal Television merged. Um, and by the end, UPN was pretty much just showing syndicated stuff. Like they were buying syndicated things like Babylon 5 and the new adventures of Kung Fu or whatever that show was with David Carradine and it was terrible. And the CW was producing stuff on its own and then picking up stuff that had crashed and burned like on Saturday mornings. I remember the CW first picked up the show Home Movies, which ultimately became really popular yes. on the Cartoon Network later. But as part of their regular programming block. And then they started Smallville and they started putting some money into real television and they're still around today carrying all of the uh, sort of DC Universe stuff. Um, all right, that that sort of carries us all the way to October 10th. All right, October 10th is a, is a, a funny story. Okay. <laughs> funny to me, anyway. Uh, uh, it's, okay. October the 10th, 1977. Yes. Aerosmith, Oh. while they're uh, coming back on stage for one of their encores... Uh, somebody decided it'd be a grand old idea to throw a cherry bomb up on the stage. When it exploded, it injured Joe Perry's hand, and I guess it caused some damage to Steve Tyler's eye. This happened in Philadelphia, and they did not do their encores because they they were injured, and they basically yeah, on their way to the hospital. Yeah, and then they you know they basically gave like two big fingers up to Philadelphia for a while, and then like a year later they returned to Philadelphia begrudgingly. And then while they were on stage, they got pelted with, like, glass bottles and stuff. Jeez, oh, yeah. tough. Tough crowd, man. Yep. Se- like, 77, 78, they were, like, at the height of their original lineup popularity, right? That was before... That was, like... That I, was before that was, Joe Perry was off doing the Joe Perry Project. Yeah, that and, was, like, right before they broke up, I think. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, well, I think they broke up in, like, uh, 80 or 81 or something like that, right? Yep. Yeah, well, it was mostly because of drugs and stuff like that. The the the, the cherry bomb that went off his hand, he probably didn't even notice. I think you noticed when it started squirting blood all over the place. <laughs> like, I guess it, it ruptured an artery, so it was like... <laughs> That's the sound of me making blood squirting noises. <laughs> and Steve Tyler's yeah. like, Ow, you got blood in my previously injured eye! <laughs> Which way is the emergency exit? Walk this way! <laughs> Walk this way! Walk this way! <laughs> now, so. if you ever want to hate my guts follow this advice go to google type in steven tyler's toes don't do it yep. don't do and it get back to I'm me. Tell, i'm warning you all oh my God. don't do it his, it's a trap his toes it, it, i forget the name of the uh condition he has but yeah. all of his toes his toes look like a car accident happened on a bridge <laughs> that just all piled up on top of each other top of yeah. each other yeah i think he could personally keep like a a pedicure place fully staffed just taking care of his feet it looks like an ostrich right got really <laughs> mad and like kicked an inanimate object like a tree or something and just like yep. you know how you get mad you kick something and then you regret it instantly because you just hurt your foot yeah well that's yep. what happened to steve tyler apparently that and yeah. an emu <laughs> and he owns it too he owns it because he paints his toenails but yeah, no, I mean, it's easy to poke fun at him, but he seems like a pretty decent dude. Yep. And hometown. For a guy who dresses like an yep. aunt. Hometown heroes there from Boston. Hometown heroes, yep, yep. And they're still here too, right? They didn't like move away or nothing, right? No, they, they had a club. They had the Mama Kins Club for a while on Lansdowne yeah. Street. All right. So moving on to the 11th. The 11th of October. Yes. So we've got two things that are sort of combined here. In 1881, David Houston Patents rolled film for cameras, which would go on to spur the development of the Kodak Brownie. And in 2001, the Polaroid Corporation, which was for a long time Kodak's main rival, files for federal bankruptcy protection. And Kodak wins. And Kodak wins. Well, I think Kodak went bankrupt first because Kodak didn't adapt to... They were still producing film cameras even though digital cameras were 
price point identical and available right. all over. But it's it's weird to see like the way that the technology evolved for a hundred years, a hundred and twenty years almost. The difference between Polaroid cameras and Kodak cameras was that that film style. So you've got strip film and you've got plate film. Polaroid became famous because they converted their plate film into those self-developing film packets. Right. They called it Polaroid land camera, right? right? Uh, land camera film that Kodak then copied as their Instamatics, yep. right? And then got sued by Polaroid. Those pictures sucked. They, they looked and terrible. And they, they did come out, they came out lousy. But there's this like, okay, so, you know, everything goes around in a big circle, right? Digital cameras came out. This is like CDs to CDs to people listening to MP3s to people listening to vinyl records again, right? right? So digital cameras came out. They made camera management super easy. You could organize stuff on your computer. It was simple to send stuff back and forth as the internet got powerful enough. You could see the picture as soon as you took it. Yeah, you could see the picture as soon as you took it and delete it and make space to take a better picture if that one didn't come out good. Like all these things that you couldn't do with a, a either a Polaroid or a Kodak now, I can see right? where, where Kodak thought, you know, because the first digital camera, my first digital camera, the pictures, I still have some of them, you know, on, on file. They're terrible. And Kodak must have been yep. like, yeah, that's not going to replace anything. And at the same time, people were like, look, have, have you ever heard the first recording? It sounds assy, but listen to, you know, right. the fidelity of, you know, technology increases fast. And I think a lot of it, too, was like Kodak engineers were like, well, who's going to want to print these on their home printer? You can't print pictures like this. Oh, right. And it wasn't. Do you remember that they used to sell just photo printers that you could connect yes. to your computer and run photo paper? And it's like all of a sudden now I don't have to go to, you know, the drugstore or a, to a photo mat. Remember photo mat to photo mat to turn in my film and wait a week and come and pick it up when it's all developed. I can do that stuff in my house and I don't have to have a dark room or anything. It's all there. And people will definitely make sacrifices in quality for convenience. Oh, yeah. And it's been shown time and time again, especially with leisure things oh, like That is cameras. something I was just about to bring up. Sacrificing quality co for convenience. Do you remember the disc camera? I My do. Lord, that was the absolute like bottom of the barrel as far as quality goes. Disc pictures looked like crap. I don't know how that right. sold a single product. Well, I think the selling point was that you could get the film developed almost immediately. You could take that like to the drugstore and if it was the disc cartridge was like they just plopped it in and it went... <laughs> through the process and then it came out. It didn't have to be enlarged. It didn't do which, any of that stuff. Yeah, it was which automated. is the same noise I made when I looked at my pitches. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Again, sacrificing quality for right. convenience. And what happens is it's like Moore's law. Moore's law in computing is that every 18 months, the power of computer a computer will right. double, right? So imagine it's like 1995 or so. I think that's right around when digital cameras started to come out. 1995 or 1996. And then, you know, they're like, they're not even a megapixel. Right. And then two years later, they're 1.2 megapixels. Then they're 4 megapixels. Then they're 12 megapixels. Then they're 24 megapixels. Now they shrink them down. They put them in your phone. You don't even need a standalone device. You can do it with almost just with software. And it's 12 megapixels and it auto-corrects and it auto... I mean, it does all of these things that photographers used to do. And is it as good? No. Is it more convenient? Absolutely. I remember there was one digital yeah. camera that actually took floppy disks. And floppy disks took, like, they held, <laughs> yes. like, 1.4 megs. One, what, yep. I've written yeah. bigger emails. So let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. We're going to go, we're going to start off with October 5th, 1952. Your friend and mine, horror icon, Clive Barker. The, the horror. horror. The horror. It took me a very, very long time before I saw the first Hellraiser. I had seen all, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say all the sequels. It's, try, like, it's like trying to catch up on Amityville. But I had seen the majority of the Hellraiser sequels, but I had never seen the original. And I went back and watched it. It was good, but it's of its time, you know. I saw that movie in, in the cinema, in the movies. 
uh, I was, uh, I think it was early teens, I guess, when that came out. And my prevailing memory of that movie is sitting there and looking to my left at my friend and looking to my right at my friend and going, what the hell is this movie it's even about? It's very slow, yeah. Be- <laughs> because it is, it's all over the yeah. place. I've never read the story that it's based on, The Hellbound Heart, but it is, it's a baffling, it was, it's a baffling experience for me even now. And the only thing that I really remember of it is like, Uncle Frank has no skin, and the guy that played the Gemini killer in Dirty Harry was the father. And everything else is a giant just mishmash of confusion. Wow. Moving on to the sixth. 1963, Elizabeth Shue, uh, the Karate Kid's girlfriend, and co-star in both Back to the Future Part Two and possibly the worst film I've ever seen in a cinema cocktail, Ooh. born in Wilmington, Delaware. I believe she was in Adventures yes. and Babysitting as well, right? Uh, October 7th, 1975, Damien Koulash from the band OK Go. The band, oh, I love them. The band that makes probably the coolest videos. Like, too bad MTV doesn't exist on that plane anymore because... Right. They would have been the most popular thing in the world. Yeah, they right now they tour and they play under their videos. So their videos play up on the screen and they all sort of play along with them, um, which is kind of cool for a band that, that doesn't, they don't, like, they're weird. They don't have fans, I'm saying that with air quotes, the same way other bands have fans. Like, they're, when they release a video, it'll get viewed a bazillion times, but their songs won't be downloaded very much on Spotify or whatever. Yeah, I'm somebody who bought, I buy their CDs when before they come out. Oh wow! I mean, like I pre- I pre-order them. I I've loved them since their very first record. As they've gone through their changes in in production, I I listen to them less now. But their first two records are super crisp and clean still, and still sound fresh. The ones that were produced by Dave Fridman um, are less so and more distorted. And there's like a good record buried underneath a record and a half. You you know what I mean? Like there's too many songs. And of those too many songs, there's a bunch that aren't very good. But there's a bunch of really good ones too. And if they got rid of the ones that aren't very good, they'd have a great record. But they don't. So All right. Let's go on to October the 8th. October the 8th. I know that day. I know somebody who has a birthday on that day. I know somebody who has a birthday on October the 8th. October the 8th happens to be the birthday of your host and mine, Bill with one L. But who else do you have? I have 1965. I have C.J. Ramon, and in 1948, I have J.J.J.Johnny Ramon too. So two Ramones and a Bill with one L. Yep. Here is the answer to our trivia question earlier right. in the in the show. Uh, Ming T was the band that played in the Austin Powers movies, a psychedelic band in between. And uh, the members of that band, they had Stuart Johnson on drums, who was basically just a, a session musician. Susanna Hoffs. From the Bangles was on guitar. The Bangles was on guitar. She walks like an Egyptian. She certainly does. Matthew Sweet was playing bass. He has a girlfriend. He does have a girlfriend. And uh, on lead guitar and backing vocals was C.J. Ramon, also known ah. also known as Christopher Ward. So there is there the answer go. to our trivia question. And happy birthday, C.J. All right, cool. Happy birthday to you, Mr. Bill. Well done. October the 9th, 1944. Speaking of bass players, the the Ox, John Entwistle from The Who. I remember the very first time I heard My Generation and his run down the bass neck with a boom, 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 boom. It It still makes the hair stand up on my arms when I hear that song. And I have been a fan of his and the Who since then. I got on board with the Who late. Uh, I'm like my first, my introduction to the Who was kind of like I, I knew the older kids in my neighborhood liked them, but my introduction to them that I can really remember, like saying "Oh my God," was um, "You Better You Bet" from the Face Dances album because it was in heavy rotation on MTV. Yep. And then later on uh, with Eminence Front, that bass line for Eminence Front, it's like. 
all over the place, but at the same time cohesive. You know, yep. it's like yep. yeah. Like they were my go-to band all through high school until I discovered punk rock as a 19-year-old or so. Uh, speaking of punk rock, which is not punk rock at all, who do we have for the October the, October the 10th? 1954 Diamond, David Lee Roth, or as he sort of goes by now, D.L. Roth, uh, American singer from Van Halen, born in Bloomington, Indiana. The funniest thing I could ever remember about David Lee Roth is he had a a solo album called A Little Ain't Enough. (laughs) Rolling Stone's two-word review was, want to bet? (laughs) Yeah, I saw him live uh, when he was doing the... um, skyscraper tour back in i want to say it was like 89 and he put on the best giant show i have ever seen it was fantastic i, I felt like i was seeing him in a club and there were like forty thousand people there it was amazing it was he was super charismatic and he was really fun there was theater built into his show it was just a hoot and a half it was so much fun to see him i am not a fan of van halen you know except for like a few songs peppered here and there i go back though usually right around this time of the year like around haunted house season And I go back and I watch early interviews with David Lee Roth just because the guy just had that it. He was just so laid back and cool and exciting and everything that as a a character that I do at the haunted house, you know, I talk to the customers all the time. You know, they're not going to get a leg up on me. So if you're going to, you know, be that kind of character... You gotta learn from the best, and David Lee Roth is one of the go-to's. I, I go to him, him and Groucho Marx. All right, and uh, why don't you wrap it up with the with the eleventh? All right, October eleventh, uh, sixteen sixty-one. This is our superstar of the week here, Melchior de Polignac, French diplomat, cardinal, and poet, born in Chateau Le Ronte, France. Wow, that was really kind of like progressive, I guess you could say. Of them, they hired a bird, a cardinal. <laughs> To be the diplomat? That's that's not the kind of cardinal that I mean. Who was their king? A freaking albatross? (laughs) St. Louis the... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yes, so Melchior de Polignac, the cardinal, poet, and French diplomat. Happy happy birthday, birthday. or happy what you would say in French. All right, that's going to uh, bring us up to... The worst song ever. What are we, who's our contender this week? I'll give you a hint. Tall, cool. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I'm already cringing. Okay, enough. Jeff, I will murder you. You'll murder me. <laughs> God. The ubiquitous don't worry, be happy. Yeah, don't don't murder me, be happy. Oh. Yes. Oh my God! It was yes. everywhere. That was like this week in 1988. It was yeah. like everywhere. It was a catchphrase. They had buttons and T-shirts that said "Don't worry, be happy." Yeah, you would just as soon as that came on the radio, it's like, oh no, the next three and a half minutes of my life are gonna be terrible. I I, I actually have a long time fondness for this song because it's such a strange, no, you it's such don't. a strange piece of music. And Bobby Farron's an interesting guy. Bobby McFerrin, but- hold on. Bobby McFerrin, see, that was actually the second song I heard from Bobby McFerrin. The first song really? I heard from him was a cover of Good Lovin'. And well, I've never heard that. It's it's fantastic. It's amazing. And he does all the voices. It's super fast. Ooh. 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 
interesting too because it's all layered of him you know doing the thing and that was the thing about Bob McFerrin was he didn't use any instrumentation it was just all of right. his voice in layers overdubbed and yeah. layered yeah but that don't worry be happy I, I think that's a, one of those cases of familiarity which is a hard word for me to say familiarity yep. breeds contempt it's very yep. true and yep, that so. song was just too much everywhere all at once yeah, it was it was too much everywhere all at once. And there, there have been a, f- a few songs that have come around that have been like that, but it's a weird novelty song. And then it sort of spawned off a career where he became again. This is back to the discussion of like what means art, right? What is art? And he went off and he built a whole like acapella orchestra and toured. And I used to he used to show up every year on PBS yes. as part of their fundraising and and did all of this like really complicated music using only the human voice and and you know whacking himself with his hands to sort of do the beat and, and still managed to 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 be interesting and of course none of that is ever on the radio and there was never a single that followed up don't worry be happy that was that charted anywhere right. he took that one hit wonderness as super popular as it was in 88 turned it into the career that he had going forward as an artiste which is i think is really interesting and, and admirable Do you too. see like going to see bobby mcfair in a concert and he's doing all this like you know crazy kind of like jazz stuff and all that and then there's just like some drunk dick in the back like do not worry me happy <laughs> <laughs> right or everybody leaves after he does it yeah, yeah you know like the you know like hey where are you going i've still got like six hours of music to go they're like no we heard oh, enough we're done we heard the kruku kruku that's what i came for <laughs> 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 all right well that's gonna wrap up the show for this week everybody right. should not worry they should be happy that's the way it goes we're gonna see you guys next week say good night jeff good night jeff see you guys bye everybody Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly, or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs>